Welcome back to the Agents of Change and Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. This is our final podcast of the year. It is right in the middle of the holiday season. So I hope you are enjoying this with a hot coffee or tea in your hand, maybe sitting around in your pajamas, or maybe it's a glass of wine and you're hiding from your family. Either way, welcome. Before we get to today's show, I want, on behalf of our Agents of Change team, to express our sincere gratitude to all of you listeners. We started this podcast, much like the program itself, with a little bit of vision and excitement, but not much else. And we continue to grow, and it's your support that makes this possible. We all really believe that amplifying the voices of underrepresented researchers can impact our planet. So thank you so much for supporting this work and vision. Today we are wrapping up the year. First, I will introduce you to Maria Paula Rubiano, our new assistant editor. We'll talk about her path to environmental journalism and her home, Medellin, Colombia. I hope I pronounced that well. Then I had a conversation with two of our current fellows, Alexa White, a PhD candidate in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Michigan, and Dr. Robbie Parks, a fellow at Columbia University, who will be an assistant professor there in spring 2023. We talk about their recent experience at the United Nations COP27 meeting in Egypt. And lastly, I will wrap things up with a look back and a peek ahead. Enjoy. All right, I am here with Maria Paula Rubiano. Maria, how are you doing today? I'm good, Brian, how are you? I'm doing wonderful. And you were just telling me about what you are celebrating yesterday. And before we get into the questions, can you can you give the listeners just a little peek into what is going on there here right before Christmas? Yeah, so yeah, it's uh, December 8th that they were recording these. And I don't know, my voice probably sounds a little bit rough because last night, we have this celebration uh, that I think is very uniquely Colombian. It's called Dia de las Velitas, so Candles Day. And it's a celebration, I think, related to the Virgin Mary, like in honor of her. I, the religious part is not really my strong, uh, like I don't know a lot about it. But what I do know is that, you know, every Colombian family gets together that night and we light little candles all along the sidewalks or in front of your home and if you live in an apartment on your balcony if you have one uh, and it's just very beautiful um, for me because it has always been a day of the year when I get together with all my you know extended family which is <laughs> very big and we eat all the traditional foods that we have here in Colombia during the Christmas times, and we put music on. Um, so yeah, it's my favorite probably celebration uh, in December. I, I think I like it even more than Christmas, although I love Christmas. I just love December as a whole because it's a it's a party in the whole month here in in Colombia and in Medellin especially. Speaking of Medellin, so that is where you are at. And as I said before we started, I will probably be butchering this word with my Midwestern uh, way of speaking. But you are in Medellin, Colombia. So tell me a little bit, outside of just the fun holidays, tell me about your home. Yeah, actually that wasn't too bad, <laughs> your pronunciation. So yeah, I, I was born here and I lived here uh, until I graduated college. 
then moved to Bogota, which is the capital of Colombia, and then uh, I left the country for a couple of years. I lived in New York there for a number of years, and then I came back uh, this year. And, you know, I feel like everyone has, like, a love-hate relationship with their hometown. I don't know if that's your case, but that's definitely mine. So, you know, Medellin is, like, a very beautiful city. It's uh, This is a tropical country, so it's, you know, there's no seasons, there's no winter, um, so it's always very warm. You know, it's either warm and sunny or, like, rainy. Uh, but it's very stable temperature. It's very green, very lush. Uh, we have a somewhat decent public transportation system, and people are very friendly and cheerful. So I really like that about the city. Um, it's a very welcoming place. But at the same time, it is not as welcoming for people who are not from here because it's a very... We're surrounded by mountains, and I feel like that really reflects on the way people are, and it's very conservative, and it's very close to people and new ideas and people who are not from here, like very, yeah. Um, and so that makes it hard to navigate as someone who perhaps has like different ideas, is more forward thinking. So it's very complex. And also the city, like I know a lot of probably like people who are listening to this have only heard of the city in the context of drug trafficking and the, the war on drugs, which really hit hard um, the history and of the city and still happening. It's not as violent as it used to be because it was like horrible <laughs> in the 90s and, and 80s. Um, so that history is still with us, the scars are still with us. Um, so that makes it very complex. Also because I feel like to get, be, you know, to get those things behind, the city has tried to rebrand itself as sort of like this, town of innovation and, you know, like technology and um, kind of like for tourism. And that has been positive in a way, but also negative because it has brought a lot of gentrification. And we're seeing something similar here that to what's happening in Mexico City, uh, especially after the pandemic, all these quote-unquote digital nomads are moving here and are making the cost of living very uh, inaccessible for locals. So, you know, I think Medellin's beauty, it's both like its blessing and its curse, and that's why I think I have this very strange relationship with it. It's it's happening everywhere. Mm. It's, uh, it's, it's funny to me to hear that that's happening there. It's not funny in that uh, I, I know it's a beautiful place, but a lot of the things that you mentioned are also happening where I live. Not specifically where I live, because I live in a pretty remote area, but some of the really beautiful places in northern mm-hmm. Michigan where I'm at, Traverse City comes to mind, the idea of digital nomads uh, is a is a real problem. Yeah. And these are places that were historically relatively poor working class that are becoming places where if you wait tables for a living, you cannot find a place to live. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what the answer is there. That is a that is a tricky one. And where are these people coming from? Yeah, I mean, I my think, goodness. Yeah, I don't know. I, at least here in in Medellin, I know a lot of them come from the U.S. or Europe, because you know the unjust financial system that exists in the world. Uh, you know, earning in dollars or euros and spending in Colombian pesos is like a very good deal which I feel very guilty because I benefit from that (laughs) working for EHN. But I feel like I am contributing to something to the city. Like one of the reasons I wanted to 
come back and not stay in the U.S., which I could have, uh, was to give back to my community. Um, but yeah, it's it's a problem because like there are whole buildings now for Airbnb rentals and that of course like shrinks the market for people who are looking for an apartment uh, to live here and not only like someone who waits stable as you mentioned but like even like professionals can't compete with someone who is earning like five times more than what they are making right and you mentioned moving back to to be involved in your community moving back from new york and you know tell me a little bit about your journey tell me about yourself and how you got into environmental reporting yeah, it's funny because whenever people ask me this, like I, I, I have to think about this a lot. And I always say that I feel like I became and like communicating environmental issues when I became a vegetarian at 16. Uh, because I remember uh, to convince my parents to let me become a vegetarian and stop eating meat, I will look a lot of like resources and links and information about you know the links between deforestation in Colombia and other Amazonian countries and cattle ranching and like you know climate change which back then was called global warming <laughs> um, and you know the links between that and cattle ranching and stuff like that and so I feel like without knowing I was already interested in environmental issues and communicating those things. Um, and during my, you know, undergrad, uh, environmental or science journalism wasn't really a thing. I, th I think, like, the history of Colombia with the internal armed conflict and, you know, the drug trafficking uh, situation, like, the focus of most journalists has been there um, historically in the country. So I, I, I didn't think those readings that interested me were journalism or could be journalism and so in 2015 I became an intern in El Espectador which is like a very old it's like the oldest newspaper in the country it's like an institution like Gabriel Garcia Marquez who won a literature prize worked there as an intern and then as a reporter like it's a very big deal and you know I somehow got an internship in the justice desk which is exactly the kind of stuff that I didn't care about <laughs> You know, kind of corruption and the military forces and, uh, like, things I really don't care. <laughs> like, I think they're very important and I admire people who do them, but, like, no, no, it wasn't my thing. And it was funny because I was sitting right across from the people that cover, like, science and the environment and health. And it was really funny because I was always talking to them. I was like, oh, my God, did you see this? Like, I knew all the news they were covering and not the news I was supposed to be covering. <laughs> and it was funny because I was always pitching my editor at the justice desk. Like, oh, there was, like, I don't know, an illegal fishing operation in a protected area. Or, you know, they cut this guy that, you know, it's uh, apparently the guy that traffics a lot of uh, fauna and animals, you know, illegally and... He has done it for a number of years, and they were always like, these stories are so... like They're like, yeah, they're cool, but they're not as interesting. Uh, and when I told like the science editor, he was like, oh, that's so cool. So <laughs> it was very clear that I wasn't like <laughs> in the place I was supposed to. And so when a position in the science and environmental desk opened, I applied and I got it. And, you know, that's kind of where my journey started. And I covered um, mostly like 
uh, water ecosystems in Colombia because we have like a lot of them. We have a lot of rivers. We have two oceans. Half of the country's um, kind of like surface is ocean. Um, so it was really fun, and I that's when I felt like yeah, this is this is what I like. I I love doing this. <laughs> You mentioned water. Are there other environmental issues that we should all know about in Colombia? Yeah, so there are like a number of them. I, I have a, a little list here of the three main things that I think are key. One is deforestation. I feel like when I have this interesting perspective on things because I am Colombian and I live and I work here, so I get to know what's important for Colombians, but I also are I am very connected to what international outlets are saying because that's where you know, most of my jobs, uh, of my work happens. And I feel like whenever in international like outlets talk about deforestation, they focus in Brazil, uh, deforestation in the Amazon rainforest. Um, but, you know, I feel like they often ignore that the Amazon rainforest is huge. It's like 5% of the world's surface, something like that. And there are actually like eight Latin American countries that are considered Amazonian countries. Uh, and Colombia is one of them. And so I feel like it's important to understand kind of the nuances of why deforestation is happening in each of these countries because the people who are destroying the forest, they are moving across countries and they are probably connected, these illegal organizations that you know, are pushing for deforestation for mining, illegal mining purposes in Peru are probably moving to Colombia and the ones that are moving in Colombia are probably connected to the ones in Brazil. And so I feel like um, when covering deforestation in the Amazon rainforest, I feel like international outlets need to better understand um, and, and better report on what's happening in the other seven countries outside of Brazil. So that's one thing. The other thing, um, it's uh, the killing of environmental leaders. Uh, I don't know if you know this or the audience knows this, but um, until this year, Colombia was like for three years in a row, like the deadliest country for uh, uh, environmental leadership. Um, You know, this year, Mexico sadly took that first place, but Colombia was close second. And so I feel like understanding the reasons behind those killings are very complex because many of them are related to like environmental issues like I don't know opposing a new mine or opposing fracking or oil extraction but then in some other cases it's also related to um, the peace agreement that Colombia signed the Colombian government signed with uh, the FARC guerrilla in 2016 and so part of that agreement was for communities that now depend economically, economically on coca production to you know, move away from those illegal activities to, towards like legal um, yeah, economic uh, possibilities. And a lot of the leaders that are being killed are both environmental leaders, but are also leaders in their communities uh, you know, m- trying to move away from coca plantation and you know, all these illegal groups um, in those places, they don't really like that, right? Because they need their supply. So I think understanding them, that is very important and understanding that in the context of the war on drugs and what I think it's, uh, it's complete failure. Um, 
it's it's important to kind of connect those two things. And one last thing, because I don't want to bore, <laughs> bore people with my long answer. Um, it's about, and it's true for Colombia, but also for the global south as a whole. It's this idea of uh, a just energy transition, right? Like right now, the, the way the energy transition is happening is kind of reproducing the same colonial and extractive framework that previous kind of like development has had. Like I give you an example here in Colombia, there's the, the, a ton of like wind energy companies arrived to northern Colombia where this what this community, this indigenous community called the Wayu peoples live, and you know these companies are just completely disrupting their rhythms of life. They are a semi-nomadic community, and so having these large structures you know, across the landscape, it's being very traumatic for them. And not only that, but it's just the way they are negotiating with these people because these are Wayu lands, these are their lands. And the way they are, quote unquote, negotiating to me is like colonization 2.0, where instead of, you know, giving people mirrors or whatever, they promise to get them like a water tank because La Guajira is a desert, so water is very scarce which is, you know, something that in the first place the state should be and the government should be providing people as a human right to access to water, right? And so the communities are very pissed there and they are very rightfully saying, like, if these lands belong to the richest man in Colombia, you wouldn't be negotiating the kind of stuff you're trying to negotiate with us. You'll be making him a partner in this project and you're not making us partners, you're not treating us as partners. You're treating us as charity cases, right? And that's not fair. And so this is happening, I feel like, across the region. Like, there's a lot of conflicts regarding lithium mining in Chile. And, you know, there's just a lot of examples. And I think, you know, once again, our lands and our countries and people, we're being seen as places to extract from and exploit without leaving like absolutely nothing for the people who live there. So I think just starting to, pl- to put like global justice, social justice in like a centerpiece of the energy transition, it's like key and super important right now. And ironically, this idea of energy justice, energy poverty, and a, and a just transition is has been one of the focal points of the Agents of Change program, a lot of fellows focus on uh, that specifically or, or pieces of that. And I want to transition into thinking about your role in that program. And you are relatively new, although it feels like you've been <laughs> here a while because uh, I don't know how we got by without you. But what most excites you about being a part of this program? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like continuing on my rant on colonialism. <laughs> yeah, you know, I feel like the Agents of, of Change is really... Uh, anti-colonial program in the sense that I feel like academia, um, you know, has been like historically an institution that has justified a lot of violence and the dehumanization of black and brown people, both in the global north and in the global south, right? And so, you know, coming from a country like Colombia, from the global south, it often feels like science is done about us, but not by us and with us and I feel like the Agents of Change program really challenges that and you know I feel like here in the Global South these kind of questions about who is a researcher who is quote-unquote a subject of research uh, and that distance that objectivity you're supposed to have 
has been questioned for like a number of decades now, like Boaventura de Sousa Santos or Paulo Freire. They are both Brazilian like educators and sociologists. They started talking about this like in the 70s. And I love seeing how these things that we have been thinking or academia has been thinking in the global south are transpiring and are arriving to institutions that are very powerful uh, in the global north. Um, and I love that there are researchers there from these marginalized communities doing science with the communities and for the communities and kind of like bringing science to society and asking the questions that society and these communities need to, you know, have answers uh, about. Um, so I don't know, to me, that's really exciting. And I am really proud and happy to be part of the program. I just, yeah, I just love it. Well, in addition to all your duties, we may have to have you do commercials for us now because that was an unplanned, uh, really, <laughs> really eloquent and beautiful way to encapsulate the program. And, I, and I feel very, very similar in a, in, in, in a lot of the points you made. And as I mentioned, you are doing a lot for us. You're sending the newsletter. You are uh, integral in our, in our meetings and calls and in shaping uh, how this program moves forward. But one of the key things you're working on is working with fellows on their essays, which has been the kind of keystone part of this uh, program since its beginning. And I was wondering if you could tell listeners why these essays are such a key part of our program and what they can expect in the in the new year with cohort four's essays. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's very in line with what I just said. And I think, you know, it they are important for a number of reasons. I think, first of all, you know, it allows readers, uh, it allows me to be honest, to get to know really cool, innovative ideas and approaches to scientific, you know, issues and scientific problems and questions. And I just, when I met the fellows uh, earlier in Philadelphia this year, I, I was so, sh like, sh positively shocked. I don't know what's the right word in English for that, but like. It was so exciting to me to see all these ideas and to listen about them. And it's like, I can't believe, like, someone is actually studying this because it seems so obviously important, but it seems like it's not part of, like, what mainstream ideas that are circulating. So I just, you know, to me, that's just a great reason to read them and to, you know, for them to exist. But I also think it allows people who might not be familiar with science and maybe don't work in academia to get to know these scientists as people because we try to infuse a lot of their personal experience and a lot of their personal like intuitions and curiosities into you know the essays and how those things that they experience as people connect to the science they're making and i think that's really important to see you know, for people to see scientists as just like humans that have questions. And I think that's very powerful and a very powerful way to bring in science into society. Um, and, you know, I think for the fellows, uh, it's also important uh, to kind of like, you know, be trained in science communication because a lot of the times these great ideas that they have don't get a lot of attention perhaps because they don't know how to communicate them for someone who is not their peers 
because they have a language that is specific to them, specific to their science, which is super important. But I think it's also important to communicate your ideas to you know a more general public, and I think that's important for the fellows themselves. And I'll say, as a reader, just selfishly, I, I find myself really gravitating toward first person writing and re and reporting yeah. and if you don't think you are a science person and you don't think you're interested in science i think that soft landing of having the eye and someone speaking from a personal experience and infusing it with anecdotes and color and painting a picture of what these communities look like what the lab looks like what the research looks like can make it much more engaging for a reader and a, and a much more fun read yeah uh, i think yeah definitely i mean i think that's that's very important for, you know, to get to know these people as, like, people <laughs> in the end. You know, not just, like, some cold, you know, objective person looking from above. <laughs> and speaking of a fun read, we will end how I, I like to end, and I need to compile these at some point and put out the best book list ever. But what <laughs> is the last book you read for fun? So I wouldn't say it's a fun book. And I feel like this is an answer that you get a lot in this podcast. <laughs> so because I get to transcript them. <laughs> but uh, the last book I read is called Klaus and Lucas. And it's by Agatha Christoph, I think is the name of the author. And it's this, it's like a trilogy, uh, but you can buy it just like one book about these two boys. Uh, the country is never mentioned, but I think it's supposed to be Poland uh, after World War II. And these two boys that are left with their grandma, that is actually not their grandma. It's just like they don't have a mother, they don't have a father. And so this person that they call grandma takes them and it's like a very cruel old woman. And these kids just grow up and become very cruel them, themselves. And, you know, in the second book, it takes a whole shift. There's like, but like the writing is so good. It's like so engaging because the author wrote it, I think, in French. But she's from, she doesn't speak French. Like French is not her first language. And so the writing is very simple probably because it's not her first language, but that works a lot because it's from the perspective of the kids. And so it's so well written and it's so harsh and brutal and crude, but it's just one of those things that they're just good literature, you know what I mean? It's just like, this is so good. I, I can't believe a human created this beautiful, heartbreaking, disgusting thing. <laughs> it's really good. I really recommend it. I mean, if you're... Feeling sad about the world? Probably don't. <laughs> but, you know, if you if you feel like you can handle, uh, you know, the cruelty of the world, I think it's a great read. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Maria, this has been so much fun, and, and I truly mean that you joining this program has been uh, such a beautiful evolution. Uh, in, we had Hannah Seo before you, who is a friend of yours, and went to NYU as well, and that transition was so seamless. And thank you for being a part of it, and enjoy the rest of your holidays. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, no, I mean, thank you for inviting me to be part of the program. I, I love it. <laughs> and now that I am editing the essays, I can't wait for readers to get to read them because they're really, really good. All right, next I spoke with Alexa White and Robbie Parks about their experience at the United Nations COP27 climate negotiations meeting in Egypt.
All right. I am now joined by Alexa White and Robbie Parks. Alexa, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. And where are you at? I'm currently in Geneva, Switzerland at uh, the United Nations uh, Permanent Forum for People of African Descent. But you don't seem to stay in one place for very long. Uh, that is that is wonderful. And Robbie, how are you and where are you? Hi. Hi, Brian. I'm very well, thanks. I'm currently in New York City. Yeah. Excellent. And both Alexa and Robbie attended COP27. And for listeners who don't know, that is shorthand for the Council of Parties. The United Nations holds these big climate summits every year for world leaders and it refers to the parties, Conference of Parties refers to parties that signed the original UN Climate Agreement in 1992. So we wanted to pick your brain a little bit about your experience there. And Alexa, I'll start with you. So first I want to hear about kind of an overview of your experience, but also the big headline that came out was this breakthrough agreement. Uh, I'll use breakthrough in quotes to provide loss and damage funding for vulnerable countries. That was kind of the big, the big headline this year. So tell me about your experience and what you thought of that breakthrough. Yeah, so I uh, went as a delegate of the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice, so I've been working with Dr. Beverly Wright for a while, Um, and uh, at COP there are these things called pavilions in a specific zone of uh, the venue where um, people and nations can basically have their own discussions and have their own platforms. And so I was one of the student leads for uh, the Climate Justice Pavilion. And so this is uh, really important for us because, one, it gives us a place to talk about climate justice exclusively, explicitly, and uh, kind of build a community there. And so that's what I was helping to do, I'll facilitate panels and discussions Um in terms of the loss and damage um, <clears throat> fund that was created, yeah, that was a really, really important development. So uh, what it really means is that developing countries um, have been really looking for financial assistance for loss and damage, um, which is money needed to, to rescue and rebuild the physical and social infrastructure of countries devastated by the extreme weather events that um, uh, are happening and, hap- and will be happening for the next three decades. And so... Creating the fund was a major milestone, right? So there have been 27 COPs. Um, The first COP that I went to was COP21, where the Paris Climate Agreement was signed. And this was just kind of a part of the discussion. But now to see that six years later it's come to fruition is amazing. Um, But now comes the difficult part. So the fund is set up, but um, it has to be filled with money. There's no money in it right now. Um, And so there's no agreement yet on how um, the finance should be provided, where it will come from, who will get it, what it will be for. and kind of like a timeline. So those are the, going to be the next discussions that we can look forward to. Excellent. Thanks, Alexa. And Robbie, same question to you. Tell me a little bit about your experience. And if you want to talk about the, uh, the, the breakthrough agreement, that'd be great. Or maybe tell me if there are headlines and things that I'm, that I'm missing that came out of this that are important. So I was uh, an official delegate as part of the Columbia University group. And I was there for the second week. So COP is usually uh, two weeks or around two weeks. Uh, this year, um, as is sort of an increasing trend, the negotiations went on for, for longer than expected. So, um, you know, that's part of the fact that they're dealing with, you know, in this implementation COP, as they called it, uh, the fact that they actually, you know, when the rubber hits the road, if you like, of the Paris Agreement, what actually is going to happen? And not least because there was also, you know, this uh, fantastic call 
by many groups, uh, including the G77 and China for the loss and damage fund, uh, which is distinct, you know, from other funds, which was why I, I suppose it was, you know, a point of negotiation. So, I mean, my experience was was fantastic. I mean, a lot of it was quite overwhelming, um, just as a sort of person who's going, who is interested in climate change and the policy side of it. It is a very different experience, say, from attending an academic conference. It's probably more like attending a music festival, I would say. Uh, so I would probably see it as like a mix between a music festival and an academic conference. A lot of people are sort of putting their best foot forwards. Um, countries have pavilions. There's a huge mix of people from around the world. Um, but it does feel like sort of a rather elite event. And so there are lots of people from the highest echelons of society from each country. Lots of indigenous people, which is fantastic, from the Indigenous People's Fund. Um, but there's also, of course, lots of people who are underrepresented at these kind of uh, conferences. So I had a fantastic time. I had to spend a few days probably calibrating exactly um, how I would get around and how what I would get out of it. In terms of the uh, outcomes of COP, I think that you know, loss and damage is obviously hugely important. And I think as part of that, uh, you know, uh, the Bridgetown initiative or the Bridgetown agenda uh, is an effort, you know, by uh, Mia Motley of Barbados to try and reform how global finance works. And I think that's an important element of how to unlock funding for uh, loss and damage and, and mitigation and adaptation uh, overall. And I just uh, I think that's worth highlighting. I think it's going to be important over the next few years to try and understand how America and other countries who have big shareholders in, you know, the IMF um, and the World Bank agree to unlock the funding and uh, try and enable countries like Barbados and other countries who are disproportionately affected by climate change to uh, get out of cycles of recovering from climate disasters and not being able to prepare for the next and also not being able to develop the country's economy. So I think that's worth looking out for over the next year or two. Excellent. Thanks so much, Robbie. And I used to go to music festivals in my younger days, and I have to imagine they're not behaving the way I used to behave between between sets. Uh, at least I hope not. But that, that's a nice that's a nice metaphor. So <laughs> I wanted to talk to you, I wanted to talk to both of you about something that maybe surprised you. So I have not been. I don't know how many listeners have or haven't been. But what surprised you about being there, Alexa? Yeah. So um, this was my fourth cop. Um, so. I I kind of understood the scheme of how it's supposed to work, but this cop in particular was very um, surveilled and muted, I would say, in terms of the amount of activists that I saw and kind of the freedom to uh, demonstrate. So, yeah, I, it was also very difficult to navigate, like physically as, as a space. Um, usually it's pretty easy. There's two zones. It's a blue zone and a green zone. A green zone is what you think of as a, a typical conference the public can attend. And then the blue zone is where all the negotiations are happening in the pavilions. Um, yeah, it was, it kind of felt as though, um, you had to work to get to the negotiations, um, and actually to, to observe outside of whatever group you came with. Um, and, um, yeah, it, and when I said surveillance earlier, so usually there's an, an app 
that you can use at COP that's supposed to help you navigate, figure out the schedule, all of that. Um, but uh, this year it came out in a Guardian article actually a few days before COP that it was a tool that was being used to surveil exactly what was going on um, through your phone or through your device. So I personally <laughs> didn't use it and I saw other people not using it and just because it's a little bit chaotic. Wow. Robbie, I want to hear your response, but Alex, I want to follow up on one thing. When you mentioned uh, the, the, the kind of division between world leader negotiations and you know the general population, when you think about suppressing the amount of activism and demonstrations, what do you think those usually uh, accomplish? You know, what is, what is the point of demonstrating at COP? The point of demonstrating at COP is to, uh, I guess, bring it down to earth. Um, quite frankly, the conversations that are happening in these kind of like big plenary sessions between the these very popular world leaders is a very either high level or um, extremely uh, technical when you get down to the smaller negotiations. And um, there's really no context. Um, the context of the problems aren't really um, highlighted outside of the activists being present and the activists reminding everyone the reason why we're here, to be quite honest. So I would say that the activism is meant to kind of pull us back from talking about these nitty-gritty texts and periods and commas and making us realize that this is about the future of our world and our lives. Excellent. And Robbie, what surprised you or is what, what was something that would surprise listeners about your experience and what you saw there? So, so I would, you know, I would echo, you know, Alexa's comments. I think the, the, the point I would make really about the youth is that the actual negotiators themselves, I would say I was surprised at how uh, youthful and young some of them were. I think a lot of small island states are represented by say, uh, grad students and older students, slightly senior grad students at American universities, for example, but also just across the board, there's a lot of quite uh, useful negotiators. I mean, it's bifurcated in a way because there are lots of really old white uh, male negotiators too. So that's worth remembering. But there was an energy there that I wasn't necessarily expecting. And so that was a pleasant surprise. I mean, you know, the other thing I would say about negotiation, because that was one of the main things I wanted insight into, but the thing I was surprised at, first of all, I so embarrassingly attended a negotiation and everyone else had a country uh, name. And then I sort of thought, oh, is this what everyone's doing? Should I go and get the United Kingdom? I was like, should I get the United Kingdom or the United States? Then I was like, oh, no, those are both taken. Then I realized, of course, everyone else sat at the table was a negotiator, and I was uh, <laughs> at the bottom of the food chain. I was, uh, I was um, you know, an observer, but they were nice enough to, to allow me to continue to sit at the table. And what, I, what the main thing that was surprising, back to your point, was really the fact that the way that people think when they embody a state is very different from the way that probably that person thinks when they're just talking about things that they care about. And so when you think about a person, you look at a person who represents the United States, they embody the United States in a way that I hadn't fully appreciated in this, in, and, and say China or India or Ghana, or whichever country, or the EU, because the EU is a party at the, at the Conference of Parties or COP. And, and the way that that somehow changes the person to represent the national self-interest really brought home the challenge of... Uh, trying to get progress in things like COP because when that person embodies a state, 
a group of states, they are really fighting for their self-interest and uh, and the national self-interest. And I think that's really not what people think about when they think about, say, people getting around to try and fix climate change or mitigate climate change. Uh, in my mind, it was sort of, you know, maybe a little bit sort of happy clappy people trying to get around and say we really want to fix this but you know there are real roadblocks that people present even when it comes to as Alexa said commas and periods in sentences you know I was at that that particular negotiation and then it was supposed to be a rubber stamp uh, negotiation basically because they had prepared this text a paragraph over the week and then at the end of the session 15 minutes they said okay are we ready to rubber stamp this and they said Yes, and then after about two seconds, someone put their hand up and said, actually, no, want to move this comma, et cetera, et cetera. And so, so really the take home was when people think or embody a state, they really behave differently. And I think that was really revealing to me about the challenge of, of, of climate change. And Robbie, I'll stick with you. When you talk about these challenges and roadblocks, how do you think the process could be improved? I think there are lots of ways it can be improved. I think that the main way, and I'll make an analogy to public health, because that's, you know, what sort of maybe I and maybe a lot of the listeners will, will have as a reference point. Smoking used to be a big part of the lobbies that used to be part of the conversation in public health. And as soon as people realised that smoking shouldn't be part of the conversation there was a lot of progress made with regards to public health uh, in that particular concern to do with smoking. When you go to COP, frankly, the first thing you see are the sponsors at the airport. The sponsors at the airport, a lot of them, I won't go into specific specific names, but they're petrostates, they're chemical companies, they're oil companies, they're drinks companies, soft drinks companies. And the initial naive thing to think is, I don't understand why those companies are involved. And so that would be the main issue that presented itself that really brought it down to earth about the scale of the issue here and how deep lobbyists from multinational companies, but also particular nation states who have a very strong interest in maintaining uh, fossil fuels, how big a challenge that is. So so I don't have the answer as to how that happens but, you know, coming in as someone who just sees what I see, I was very, very surprised at, you know, the real politic, if you like, of what is actually going on at COP. And it necess- necessitates those people being involved and those uh, companies being involved. So that would be the main thing that comes to mind. Uh, yeah. Alexa, how about you? Yeah, in terms of the improvement, I um, think I have a, a little bit of a bigger ask. Um so when uh, these COP negotiations are over, they uh, have to have a lot of um, kind of uh, the decision making process requires consensus. Um, and so the reason why these negotiations go on for so long is because they have to all agree on the commas and the periods and these these statements. And so. If I were to see an improvement with COP, I think there should be um, uh, either a majority kind of governance where everyone votes and and that's what goes forward, or um, at least some sort of uh, consequence for these actions. So, for example, uh, the U.S. pulled out and then we came back in. 
Um, and there was no repercussions for that or any kind of argument about it or it was just business as usual. And I think that without either uh, majority rule in terms of voting or some sort of uh, governance where there are consequences to uh, each of the party's actions, then there's it's very hard to move forward. That's why we've had 27 cops. Um, and so I think things would move faster and we would see a lot more um, uh, enthusiasm, maybe. And Alexa, I'll stick with you. What are some reasons for optimism and hope around the COP process? Yeah, um, so it is very, very difficult to um, find a singular answer to climate change that not only individuals like us can agree on, but the entire world full of almost 200 different different parties. And so um, in terms of optimism, um, COP is necessary. As much as people speak on it and kind of criticize um, how it operates, um, there is no other forum where there are representatives from every country coming together to specifically talk about climate change. Um, I don't really think that um, there is another way. Um, and so when we think of these international treaties, so it began with the Kyoto Protocol, moved into the Paris Climate Accord, now we're seeing these funds being created um, it's really important, regardless of the cons, the pros outweigh the cons every time. And Robbie, what makes you hopeful? So I, I feel similarly uh, to Alexa, I think. I think it's easy to be cynical. Like I was resisting the uh, urge to be cynical the entire time I was there. You know, like the fact that, you know, people take themselves very seriously there. But, you know, it's like tens of thousands of people flying into one particular place from around the world talking about climate change, it's easy just to sort of take a step back and say, come on, guys, this is like, you know, this is a bit silly in a way this, that we're uh, trying to address climate change in this particular way. However, as Alexa said, it is the best hope that we have. And without it, I, we would be totally... Um, we would be totally in a, in, a, in a really big hole with regards to climate change. There'd be absolutely no coordination. There'd be no set goals... And so I certainly feel that it's a completely necessary, if imperfect, device for, for the world and climate change mitigation and climate justice. The reason I have for optimism uh, is I found that there were two influences that I think the, the sort of men in grey suits uh, probably had been influenced by. And I would say the relative element of youth, the very young people there, uh, and the pavilions. Now, what happens is the negotiators tend to walk around the pavilions when they're sort of having lunch or board, and they listen to what's going on. So the fact that there's a climate justice pavilion, the fact that there is uh, youth representation, the fact that the WHO has a health pavilion, you know, people are walking around. And, and those, the growing influence and the growing presence of those pavilions allows the people who are somewhat removed from the sort of I guess, the daily experience of climate change in, in, in the most uh, seriously hit countries. They're listening. And I, I find that that pipeline, it's imperfect again. 
But that pipeline is really necessary, and that's why I have optimism by the fact that, say, the Climate Justice Pavilion can be there, that people can listen and have a voice. Now, it's obviously not perfect, but, but I think that that's absolutely necessary, and it wasn't necessarily there, say, 20 years ago or 10 years ago. So I would say that that's progress. Well, thank you so much to both of you for shedding some light on, I think, for a lot of people, what is an esoteric negotiations process. Robbie, Alexa, the listeners will get to know you more down the road when we have a one-on-one podcast, but thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you, of course. All right, another big thank you to Alexa, Robbie, and Maria for joining me today. And before I let you go for the year, I just want to briefly fill all of you in on some major happenings that our program has had happened this past year. In addition to adding Maria, we also added Dr. Max Ong and Dr. Lariah Edwards as assistant directors, both who are senior fellows. And we added Dr. Vina Singla, a senior scientist with the NRDC, as an associate director. We also have a new institutional home the Columbia Mailman School of Public Health. And we had our first in-person retreat this past October outside of Philadelphia where we got to meet all of our cohort four fellows. It was a fantastic time. Looking ahead to the next year, as Maria mentioned, we will soon start publishing essays from the current fellows, exploring their research and ideas and lived experience on environmental injustice issues and solutions. For this podcast you're listening to, we are still going to be with you every two weeks featuring fellows and other environmental justice leaders. However, we will be adding special episodes where fellows themselves take over and discuss research, environmental justice organizing, navigating academia, and all kinds of other fun topics. We'll also be hosting some roundtables with researchers, organizers, and others in the space to have frank discussions about what's working and what's not in the push for health equity and environmental justice. And we're starting something new. We have a new community science collaboration. Fellows will work in small groups to complete a project in partnership with an external organization focused on environmental health and justice. We launched the Community Science Collaboration this year because we believe that working with community is key to science for change. And it is important for fellows to have experience with building partnerships and doing science in service of community priorities. We're currently in discussion with potential partners and expect to launch these projects in the new year. Thank you all again so much for your support. I have so much fun putting this podcast together. I have a lot of duties as editor of Environmental Health News and Agents of Change. And I have to say, talking to these folks and putting this together is one of my very favorite parts of my job. I look forward to another year of pushing for justice, equity, and change with all of these fantastic guests. So cheers. I'll talk to you all next year. Thank you.